You are listening to a sermon by Ted Hamilton, Senior Pastor of New Life Presbyterian Church in Escondido, California. For more information about New Life, visit us online at newlifepca.com. That's N-E-W-L-I-F-E-P-C-A dot com. Now to the word. Um, let me put it in context. Remember, so the angel Gabriel has come to Mary, right? She's, he has announced to her that she's, uh, even though she's a virgin, she's going to conceive and bear a son who is Christ the Lord. And after she gets that announcement from Gabriel, she visits her cousin. Uh, we call that the, the visitation. Mary goes to see Elizabeth, uh, an elderly woman beyond childbearing years who finds herself miraculously pregnant with uh, a son who will uh, grow up to be John the Baptist. And when Mary arrives and Elizabeth sees her, uh, Elizabeth pronounces a, a kind of blessing on her. Uh, on Mary, and she says, among other things, why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? And it's, it's a remarkable statement, both about the lordship of this in utero child, uh, but also it's a remarkable statement of humility. Uh, and then she, she goes on to say, and blessed, speaking to Mary, and blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And, and so Mary gets this blessing from, from Elizabeth, and in response, she breaks out in song, a song she wrote. Um, it is, as far as we know, the first Christmas carol. Uh, and we're going to read that song uh, today. It's at Luke chapter 1, verses 46 to 55. Uh, so would you please open your Bibles or open your bulletins, and if you're able, please stand with me as I read Mary's song. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. And holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things. And the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. This is God's word. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, as we open up this Christmas carol, this first Christmas carol uh, written by the Virgin Mary, We pray that you would open it up to us and help us to uh, learn from it what you would have us know. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In commenting about this song, Martin Luther, great German reformer, uh, said this, 
said that Mary's song is, is, quote, about the good, the great works and deeds of God for the strengthening of our faith, for the comforting of all those of low degree, and for the terrifying of all the mighty ones of earth. We are to let the hymn serve this threefold purpose, for she sang it not for herself alone, but for us all to sing it after her. So Brother Martin uh, gives us our outline today, and we're going to ask and answer uh, three questions. First, how does Mary's song strengthen your faith? Second, how does Mary's song comfort, as she put it, those of humble estate? And then third and finally, how does Mary's song terrify the mighty ones of the earth? That's our outline. So first question then, how does Mary's song strengthen your faith? Well, the short answer is that it strengthens your faith by showing you in a, in a very clear way the God in whom you have placed your faith. Right From this song, you see first that God is, is mighty, right? He's strong. Mary says that in verse 49 and verse 51. But the strength of God that you see at Christmas is not typically what you and I think of strength, is it? Right? It took God's mighty strength for God to become weak, right? To become small, to become vulnerable, to become, in a word, like us. We tend to think of strength, I think, as wielding power, right? That's what I think, right? And that's what we want to do. We all, uh, at some, some level, all of us want, want to have power. But God's strength at Christmas is demonstrated by giving up power. And we don't think that way and enough, and we should. Right? Pastor and poet George Herbert 1633, uh, wrote a poem, and, and in that poem he said it this way, Hast thou not heard what my Lord Jesus did? Then let me tell thee a strange story. The God of power, as he did ride in his majestic robes of glory, resolved to light, and so one day he did descend, undressing all the way. One day he did descend, undressing all the way. That emptying, that divesting, that undressing by the Son of God of his glory took massive strength, massive strength. And and it was strength, uh, it was Jesus' strength exerted on your behalf. And it also took not just strength, but courage. It was G.K. Chesterton who, who once wrote that uh, alone of all creeds, Christianity has added courage to the virtues of the Creator. I believe he's right. And Christmas is one historical moment in Christianity when God demonstrated his incredible courage. So we learn that God is strong, he's mighty, uh, and that strengthens our faith. From Mary's song, you also see that God is holy. Verse 49, holy is his name. Uh, 
And since in Hebrew uh, culture, right, the name captured the character, uh, when she says holy is his name, it's really another way of saying that holiness is part of who God is. It's part of his character. What does it mean that God's holy? Well, it, interestingly, it means that even as he becomes like you at Christmas, that he's not like you. He is, on the one hand, very much like you, right? Fully human. And yet, he is also fully divine. And that sets him apart from you. That makes him holy. H-O-L-Y. Because he is holy. W-H-O-L-L-Y. Holy other. And his ways, his thoughts are beyond our full knowing and understanding. But God's holiness doesn't just mean that he is different, that he's set apart from us. It also means when it comes to sin, he's like a consuming fire. Uh, fire is a wonderful metaphor uh, for God. Um, I was thinking about it as I was reflecting on the song. A few years ago, uh, Linda and I went up to a cabin and it was in the middle of winter Uh, the electricity wasn't on, it was night, it was freezing, right? And you go into this cabin, and the first thing uh, I did was start a fire in the fireplace. And it, it was amazing how that fire had the power almost instantly to transform the place, right? It, it, with its light and with its heat, the, the, that dark, freezing cabin be, became somewhat homelike, right? Um, and, and standing near the fire was, was very comfortable, right? As we could feel its warmth and catch the, the sweet aroma of the, of the smoke. But, right, it's fire. And for all of its goodness and for all of its power, if you get too close to that fire, what is warm and comfortable becomes dangerous and killing, doesn't it? And, and, and that, that's why I think fire is such a, a wonderful metaphor for God. It's how God is with sin, right? Because he's holy, God is utterly opposed to sin. He is utterly committed in his own nature to ultimately vanquish sin. In fact, by his own nature, nothing sinful can really exist in his presence. Anything sinful, anything less than perfection, comes too close to God, it's destroyed. Now, if that's all you learned from this song, I'm not sure it would strengthen your faith. (laughs) Right? That God is strong and that God is holy. Right? That wouldn't be a cause to celebrate. That wouldn't be a cause to sing. I'm not sure that would strengthen my faith because what you'd be learning then is that God is a, is a real danger to you. But you learn something else here, and that something else you learn when combined with, with God's strength and God's holiness becomes a, a mighty power to strengthen our faith. You're also, you also learn here that this God of strength and this God of holiness is also a God of mercy. All right, verses 50 and 54. Mary is singing about the mercy of God here. And what's interesting, of course, is that when she was singing it, 
She didn't know what shape that mercy would take. She knew that God was being merciful. She knew he was going to be merciful. And by the way, you notice, right, that this song is written, Mary sings in the past tense, primarily of what's future, right? She's speaking of what the Messiah is ultimately going to accomplish in the future, but but singing of it as if it's in the past tense. It's that, it's that wonderful Hebrew way of expressing confidence in, 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 the, in the fact that it's going to happen, is that I'm going to talk about this, I'm going to sing about it as if it already has. Um, what she didn't know is, so she, so she knew God was being merciful. She just didn't know what shape God's mercy was going to take when she sang this song, she had no idea when she was singing it, that God's mercy was going to take the shape of a cross. She didn't know that for God to give her and to give you mercy would mean that Jesus would have to be destroyed by God's justice. And amazingly, that's how the strong, holy, and merciful God saves you and me for a life with him by the sin-paying, death-destroying, justice-satisfying death uh, of his own son, Jesus. He truly was the baby born to die. Mary wasn't quite sure of that yet, but there it is. And the last thing you learn here that strengthens your faith is that this strong, holy, and merciful God is also a God that keeps his word. He keeps his promises over the long haul, even when you might think he'd, he must have forgotten, right? At the, at the end of this song in verses 54 and 55, Mary is singing about how God is acting for his people in fulfillment of promises he made to Abraham. When Mary sang that song, those promises were already 2,000 years old. And not only were those promises 2,000 years old, it had been 400 years since the last prophet. 400 years since Malachi and no word from God. It would have been easy for the most faithful Jew to think that God must have forgotten, God must have moved on. And yet what we remember here that strengthens our faith is that God remembers and keeps his promises. Right? No matter how long it takes. The timing is right for him, right? His timing is very different than ours. His, um, but you can take that to the bank, that God, God is going to fulfill his promises. What God has begun in you, what God has begun in your family, he will bring to completion. So that's how this strong song strengthens our faith. Let's look at the second question. Then how does Mary's song comfort people of humble estate? I guess the first thing we should ask is what is it? Who is that? Who, what does it mean to be a person of humble estate? It can mean a couple of things, right? It, it, it might mean you're a person who's in poverty, financial poverty, right? You're poor, you're destitute. That would be a person uh, of humble estate. Now, by the world standards, uh, most of us here, most of us here would not be considered poor. By American standards, on the other hand, most of us 
probably wouldn't be considered wealthy. But being a person of humble estate, if, if always means uh, to, 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 uh, being a person in spiritual poverty. Right? It, and what's interesting about that is that that's true of everyone. Every human being is spiritually impoverished, but millions upon millions of human beings don't acknowledge it. Being a spiritually poor person, which is every person on the planet, in, in, objectively, but, but to be a spiritually poor person, to be, uh, as Jesus said it in the Sermon on the Mount, to be poor in spirit, means that you are a person who has come face to face with that reality. You've come face to face with your own spiritual poverty. It means you're a person who has come to the realization that you aren't holy, that you need to be forgiven, that you, you, you need, you have guilt that has to be atoned for, that you need shame covered. In short, that you need a savior. You know, if you're a financially poor person, if you're that kind of humble estate person, you're shut out from a lot of what the world can offer, right? Um, You aren't able to get everything uh, you want. You may not be able to get everything you need. Uh, You're not able to impose your will uh, on people, you know, as, as a poor person, you can't call the president. You probably can't even call the mayor and, and expect him to take your call uh, if you are uh, a poor person. Um, if you're a spiritually poor person, the stakes are infinitely higher, right? Because spiritually, the spiritually poor person is shut out from God. You're, you're separated from God by your sin. You can't reasonably or expect that God automatically uh, is for you. Now think about Mary. Who is she? she? Well, Mary is a person of humble estate in both respects, right? She's, she is a financially poor person. We know that from the offering that, that she and Joseph later bring to the temple. Uh, they, they bring the, the, the two pigeons, which is, the, which is what the law requires the poorest of the poor to bring. So we know that's, that they were, they were financially poor. But, but Mary also was a spiritually poor person. Now that might shock some of you who are Roman Catholics. But I mean, look at this song here. I mean, she's, she's celebrating God's mercy and she, and she calls God her own son, her savior, right? See, she's rec- she recognizes that she's just like you and me, that we need, that we, we have sin, that we need God's mercy, uh, that we need a savior. And, and, and yet what she's celebrating in this song is that neither her material poverty nor her spiritual poverty prevented God from looking on her with favor. Right? From moving toward her in mercy, blessing her, doing great things through her, ultimately being her savior, drawing her to himself and writing her into his great drama of his coming kingdom. 
So a nobody by every measure becomes a somebody by every measure when she fears God. Verse 50, his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. That's the comfort for you and me here, right? God doesn't reward the rich and spiritually competent. He saves the poor and the spiritual, spiritually needy. Say that again. God doesn't reward, reward the rich and the spiritually competent. He saves the poor and the spiritually needy. That means there isn't anyone here who can't come into the circle of God's blessing because God is a savior, not a rewarder. That's a huge comfort. And if you're still trying to relate to God as a rewarder, it's no wonder uh, you wonder where your joy is. It's no wonder that you can't sing with the kind of joy that Mary is singing here. Because relating to God, trying to relate to God as a, re- as a rewarder is a fool's errand. You can't earn your way into his favor. You can't earn a reward from the Almighty God. The only way you into His favor is by His mercy. And His mercy is for those who fear Him. Worship Him, honor Him, respect Him, thank Him. If you don't fear God today, and I suspect we have people like that, we're glad you're here. That's the takeaway for you. Fear him. Right? Ask God to move toward you in his mercy. Ask him to forgive your sin. Ask him to cover your shame. Ask him to atone for your guilt. He will. Right? If you're a Christian, what you need to do is what Mary did here. Right? In your spirit, in your soul, those are right at the beginning of the song, right? She talks about her spirit and soul. Those are the same thing. Uh, and it's really referring to her innermost being, right? That sort of, that you're the center of who, of who you are. In her innermost being, what did she do? She magnified the Lord and she rejoiced in God, her Savior. That's what we as Christians need to do. Now, what is it to magnify the Lord? What does that mean? Well, to magnify the Lord is to do what a telescope does, not what a microscope does. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm grateful to John Piper for, for this insight, and, he, and it, it, it's helpful. Right? A microscope makes tiny things big. That's not what we're doing with God, right? Uh, we need... To magnify the Lord is to do what a telescope does. And what a telescope does is make something enormous appear to us as something closer to what it really is. Right? So think about it, right? A star, a planet, is just for us a point of light in the sky. But through a telescope, what happens? That planet, that star, fills your vision, doesn't it? It appears, it appears closer to what it really is. You begin to see its enormity. 
What you need to do is what Mary did here. Fill your vision with God. Let your whole field of vision be taken up with the Lord. Now, how do you do that? Well, the first thing you do is pray for it. And you know, one of, one of uh, the hymns that we sing here a lot, uh, it, one of my favorite hymns, uh, is in fact exactly that prayer, right? Be thou my vision. Right? That's us saying to God, Lord, be my vision. Fill my field of vision. Let me see you for who you really are. And then, and then, and then, so you pray, and then you, you move your eyes off of all of the, the stuff that, that tends to divert your eyes, right? Just t- take your eyes off of all the empty stuff, all the empty promises of the world. Fix your eyes on Jesus again. Take time to reflect on who God is, who you are, and what he did to save you anyway. Let his grace amaze you again. Let God's holy power and holiness and mercy and love melt your heart again. And you know what will happen if you do this? It's, it's going to, in, the, in, the, in biblical parlance, restore the joy of his salvation to you. Right? So many of us, especially in these days, are living, even Christians, living joyless lives. Right? If, if we do this, it'll, if we do what Mary does here, Right, um, our joy will be destroyed. Our perspective will be will be brought back in line, uh, and we'll have the power to move through our challenges. And we all have a lot of them to move through our challenges unmoved, unshaken, and with joy. Yeah, not joy for the circumstances, but joy in Jesus in the middle of our circumstances. All right, so that's how it comforts. This song comforts those of humble estate, and, and that's us. Uh, third and final question, then. How does Mary's song terrify the mighty ones of the earth? Well, we started the, the last question. We had, we had to define the terms, right? Who, we, we had to define who the humble, humble ones are. Who are the mighty ones of, of earth? Well, according to Mary's song here, they are people who are uh, proud in the thoughts of their hearts. See that in verse 51, right? They're internally proud people. They are people who hold and exercise political power. Verse 52, right? People who sit on thrones. Um, And they are the people who who don't recognize their spiritual poverty, right? They're the ones who think they're spiritually rich, spiritually well, spiritually competent. That's verse 53. Now, often these people are also financially wealthy um, because wealth often translates to power and pride and control, but they don't have to be wealthy, the, the fact here is that Mary has described millions upon millions of people, right? A lot of, he's, she's describing a lot of people I know, a lot of my cl- close friends, right? People who, by, by the standards of, 
of, uh, of the world are decent people, good citizens, right? But internally, right, where in their hearts, what, what's, what, what's going on? They're, 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 they, they think, they wouldn't say this probably, that they're, that they're better than others. And if God exists, they're good enough for God. Um, there are people who have the, you know, the, who can exert their will through, through power, particularly political power. There are people who have no sense of any need for God. He is irrelevant to them. Right? That's the, that's the, they're the mighty ones of the earth, right? Because they are, because they think they're mighty. They think they're strong apart from God. They think they're self-actualizing apart from God. Self-realizing apart from God. These are the people who Luther says uh, should be terrified by Mary's song. Why? Because God's going to bring them down. Right? He's going to blow them away like the down of a thistle. Did you get the Christmas illusion there? Their power and control is, in, is really, I mean, next to God's, it's illusory, right? It's, not, it's, it's nothing. Their power and control is, is, is nothing compared to the real power and control of the sovereign God they are blowing off. And so God will blow them off. It is terrifyingly just. So what's the application here? Well, if you're, if you're in this group, uh, the application is pretty, pretty simple. Be terrified. That's a healthy thing. Yeah. Wake up to the fact that what you have, what you're building your life on, what you're counting on to give your life meaning and significance is all temporary. You will, at the end of your life, be empty and without hope because you've hoped in temporary things, not the living God. See, what, see your wealth and power for what they really are, right? They're good gifts from the hand of a good God. To be used by you with gratitude to God. To be used for God's glory. To be used in God's service. To be used for the, for the benefit of others. Apart from that, your, 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 your power, your control, your wealth... Those things are going to be a death sentence. And that is terrifying. For you Christians here, it, there's, there's application though, right? Because we're tempted to go there. We are constantly and powerfully tempted by the world to move off of the Lord in favor of wealth and political power. Those things are what Lewis called sweet poison. They're sweet poison, not because, because by themselves they're, they're, they're evil or harmful. They're sweet poison to the extent that you go to those things and, and in going to them you push Jesus out of the center of your life and faith and begin to trust in those things more. Begin to trust in those things functionally.
You know, in this country, we are blessed, each of us as citizens in this federal republic, to have some political power. We all have some slice of, of political power. It's, and we have the privilege and the responsibility to, to exercise that, that power. But as believers in Jesus Christ, we must understand that power in proper perspective, friends. It's temporary. It's limited. It pales in comparison to the power and the agenda of the living God. So two points of application here. First, being on the winning side in some political contest is fine. That's great. But it's not ultimate. Any political advantage gained can be undone or erased. Probably will be. So don't get too caught up in the victories and by the same token, don't despair in the defeats. God is more powerful than any politician or political party or political position or political policy. And he is and always is in real control. Right? Seeing to it that his good, pleasing and perfect will is being done. Psalm 146 is is a good psalm to to go to. It's almost certainly a psalm that Mary went to. You read Psalm 146, you see a lot of the themes in Mary's song are are reflected in Psalm 146. She no doubt thought deeply about Psalm 146, which says in part, Put not your trust in princes and a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God. That's what Mary was singing, and that's what you and I need to sing. Second application. As Christians, we need to remember that as as good and and as helpful as wealth and political power might be, they're not fundamentally what Jesus uses to get things done. Jesus' strength and influence come come primarily from not gaining power, but giving it up. Not ruling, but serving. Not demanding rights, but surrendering rights. You know, this is how the kingdom of God comes. This is how Jesus operated. This is how God's people will ultimately win. As one Christian pundit recently put it, the thrill of political combat or the hope of an inspiring campaign can provide a sense of purpose, but it's a thin gruel compared to the holistic Gospel-driven, direct, face-to-face impact of loving families, deep friendships, and a healthy church. A lot of people, even Christian people, will say this is hopelessly naive, what I just said. So did Jesus' disciples at first. But remember, friends, it's in our God-trusting weakness that God manifests his strength and his sufficient, and the sufficiency of his grace. And that's what Mary was singing in her first Christmas carol, and I pray that you and I can sing it too this Christmas. Amen.
Let's, uh, let's take a minute and just pray silently together as you reflect on, on what Mary was what singing and how that song has spoken to you. Uh, just, just pray about that. And, uh, um, and then I'll close us here in just a moment. Thank you. Let's pray. Lord, we're thankful that uh, you came to Mary and for all of the implications of that historical fact. Thank you for your strength, for your holiness, and for your mercy that allows us to have enjoy you and to experience joy at your right hand. Thank you for the mercy you've given us in Jesus that by his life and death he has uh, given us forgiveness and has covered our shame toned for our guilt uh, so that we can have peace with you um, Lord this Christmas may, may you restore to us the joy of our salvation as we seek to magnify you and to rejoice in you, O God, our Savior. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to Ted Hamilton, Senior Pastor of New Life Presbyterian Church, Escondido. Please visit us in Escondido, California, or online at newlifepca.com. New Life Presbyterian Church Escondido reserves all copyrights as applicable by law. Thank you for listening.